Hello, everyone, and welcome to Invisible Hate. I'm Asad Butt. And I'm Sadia Khan. And our story today takes us to Lake Orion, Michigan, in March of 1995. Scott Amador lies on the floor of his mobile home, bleeding profusely. In his chest, two bullet wounds shot at point-blank range. Next to him, a chair. Amador was trying to use it as a shield, but that didn't work. Behind him, his friend Gary Brady stands frozen and shocked. He rushes to call 911, but as you can imagine, it's too late. Outside, a man has a gun in his hand and is heading to his car. He's leaving the scene of the crime he just created. And inside, Amador struggles to breathe. And then, in an instant, it stops and Amador is gone. This is Invisible Hate. Welcome back to Invisible Hate, a weekly true crime podcast in which Sadia and I attempt to uncover the ugly truth behind various hate crimes, both recent and historical. That's correct, Asad. Many of the cases that we discuss involve crimes committed against minority groups. Our goal is to determine through a discussion of the nuances and complexities of these unfortunate situations whether or not these transgressions can be considered hate crimes. So, Asad, how was your week? My week has been going okay. Remember last week I was telling you that I have this new workout routine and I was trying to get back in shape. Sadly, I think I overdid it. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) What did you do this time, Asad? I injured myself. (laughs) After I turned 40, I just feel like... um, constantly pulling muscles and injuring myself this time it was my foot i think you know so i also play soccer and i think i did something to my foot and so i'm just resting it and icing it and heating it all day long but uh yeah injuries are not fun how was your week my week is going okay but you know to your point i think you should try pilates or yoga Mm. I've heard so many good things and I did try Pilates. I have taken a few sessions, private sessions, which are extremely expensive. Oh, sadly offensive. And I decided not to go back because it was getting really <laughs> Immigrantly is doing well, private lessons. Yeah, I'm not immigrantly. Maybe my husband is. Oh, your husband's doing well. Okay, got some. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, it's so good, I said. If I yeah. had a lot of money... I would be doing Pilates every single day. I kid you not, it's so good. About a decade ago, I was really into yoga. I was going, you know, three or four times a week. And yeah, I agreed. It was uh, it was, it was, was amazing. And uh, yeah, I need to get back into it. But you know, sadly, it's like that hour, hour and a half of that quietness. I, I feel like it's so foreign to me these days when I'm just so connected, listening to podcasts and looking at my phone. I think, I think that transition is going to be really hard for me. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> but I'll try. You should try, Asa. Then maybe I should try going to these sessions again. Yeah, I think that'll be good. Why not? So, Asa, let's get to our today's case. Yeah, so Sadia, let's go back to 1995. It's March 6th. 
Scott Amador and Donna Riley sit on a stage in front of a live studio audience in Chicago, Illinois. The two have decided to go on the Jenny Jones show. And now, here she is, Jenny Jones. Some of our listeners might remember that show. It was a daytime tabloid talk show. And, you know, Salia, these are the type of shows that really like to show dramatic, exploitative content. I'm sure that you're aware of yeah. some of them, you know. These shows like to stir the pot by revealing, you know, affairs and secret crushes. And If you suspect somebody's been cheating on you, we'd be happy to give you a, or them a lie detector test. 312-832. Those shocking breakups. And sometimes, you know, they have like, you know, fights on, right. on stage. You know, Jerry Springer, Phil Donahue, even like early Oprah. And, you know, Sally, these were really hugely popular shows. They still are, but certainly in the 90s, I feel like that was that was where it was at. Did you ever watch any of these shows? I did. I started watching Jerry Springer's show when I came to the U.S. No way. Really? <laughs> yes, in early 2000s. And I kid you not, I, I thought can't every single person in the U.S. was like one of the guests on the show. And I oh, was yeah, I can imagine. freaked out. That was my exposure <laughs> to American pop culture. Please meet Carolyn. She says that her husband's mistress is sadly mistaken if she thinks Carolyn is giving up her husband without a fight. Do they have these type of shows in Pakistan? Uh, do they? Now they do. I don't think they had them at the time when I left. Not in the yeah. early 2000s. But yeah, I was freaked out and I used to complain and crib. And my husband was like, please stop watching these shows. <laughs> so yeah, I, I remember watching Jerry Springer. Yeah, yeah. I watched some of these, you know, in the 90s and, and whatever, early 2000s. I don't think I ever watched Jenny Jones's show. But, you know, her show was very much in this vein. And it was actually one of the highest rated talk shows in the 90s, Sadia. Hmm. And on this particular day, back in March of 1995, the title of the episode is same sex secret crushes oh and yeah so you could probably imagine where this story is going so scott amador is one of the guests and you know he's intending on sharing a secret a secret crush he's going to tell in front of a live audience that his secret crush is on his friend a person named jonathan schmitz now remember donna riley is on the stage too she's close friends with both Scott and Jonathan. And while this is all happening, Jonathan is actually backstage in anticipation, ready to meet his secret admirer. But he doesn't know, obviously, who his admirer is. He later says the producers implied that it was a woman, right? So hmm. he's in this mindset that, you know, yeah, someone's going to tell them that they like him, but it he was assuming that it was going to be a woman. So he's completely unaware that the secret admirer is going to be his friend, Scott. On stage, Jenny Jones riles up the audience. Here she is. Now, which of these ways would you choose to reveal your secret crush on someone? A, would you write that person a letter? B, would you tell the person in private in case he rejects you? Or C, would you tell that person that you're gay and you hope he is on national television? <laughs> And so, you know, back on stage, Sadia Amador tells Jones about Schmitz. Hmm. And remember, Schmitz is still backstage. So Amador describes the first time they met and talks about his feelings for him. And then Jenny Jones asks Amador to share an intimate fantasy involving 
Schmitz. Oh my god! Which gosh. I just find so weird. It and is I, weird. You know, I don't remember this happening, and I, you know, I feel like maybe in the world of podcasting now, this is more common. But this seems really, I don't know, salacious to me, right? What kind of podcasts are you listening to, Asad? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I I don't listen to them per se, but I'm guessing they're out there in this this world of podcasting. So, you know, I guess Amador didn't think this was weird, and he explains a particular fantasy involving a hammock, champagne, and whipped cream. And of course, you know, Sadia, the audience just kind of roars with excitement. I just, yeah, I thought about it. tying them up to my hammock. Um, and well, it entails like whipped cream and champagne and stuff like that. Yeah, the audience is engaged, right? They totally. are all excited and all riled up. This was just really made for TV stuff. It's entertainment, it's salacious. And now the moment has come. It's time to bring out Schmitz and reveal his secret admirer. Here's another clip from the show. Get the headphones off of John and let's have John come out here oh, and right see now. who has the crush on him. Here's John. <laughs> Did you think Donna had the crush on you? Did I? No, we're good friends. Well, guess what? It's Scott that has the crush on you. You lied to me. <laughs> yeah, so Sadly, you can tell from the clip that Schmitz is, like, confused that, you know, maybe he thought that as he walked out on the stage that Donna, who was on the stage, was the one that who had a crush on him. And, you know, upon hearing the news that it was actually Amador who had the crush, Schmitz appears to be actually relatively unbothered. It does look like he has a forced smile and an uncomfortable laugh. You know, you can imagine kind of like that shock and surprise. I think all of us would kind of not know how to react or, or whatever in that situation, especially in front of a live right. audience. I think the the important point, Asit, is that they were in front of the live audience, right? It makes it a lot more awkward. Oh, yes. I think that's a great way to put it, Sadia, for sure. Schmitz goes on to say that he's really flattered by Amador's crush, but doesn't reciprocate as he identifies as straight. Jones then plays back Amador's description of his whipped cream fantasy, revealing this intimate scenario to Schmitz. I mean, Sadia, can you imagine, like, how would you react in front of a live yeah. studio audience? It would definitely be awkward, Asit. I can tell you that. Yeah, it'd be awkward. It's just, you know, this was... TV and entertainment, you know, at that time. So anyway, the show ends and all three of them, Amador, Schmitz and Riley, leave the studio. And you know what, Sadia? They agree to remain friends, actually. That's good. Yeah, the three even go to a party together in Chicago before traveling back home to Lake Orion, Michigan together the next day. But Sadia, you know, little do the three know the Jenny Jones episode will actually never air. In fact, it will only ever be seen in court. Oh, no. And that's because, unfortunately, the story only goes downhill from here. After the taping, Schmitz begins a drinking binge. He starts to tell several friends and acquaintances that he is embarrassed and humiliated by the entire experience. And then on March 9th, 1995, just three days after making the appearance on the show, the taping of the show, 
Schmitz comes home to find a sexually suggestive note in his mailbox. And he is overcome by anger. And so much so that he drives to a local bank where he takes out a bunch of money. And then he goes on to purchase a 12-gauge pump-action shotgun and ammunition that goes along with it. And Sada, you know where this is headed, unfortunately, right? Schmitz gets into his car and he drives to Amador's trailer because he wants to confront him. According to the New York Times, Schmitz sits in his car with a shotgun for several minutes. You know, he's probably contemplating, you know, what he wants to do or what, you know, what action he wants to take. And then finally, he leaves the gun actually in the car and goes to knock on the door of the trailer. Upon opening the door, Amador is actually pleased to see Schmitz. You know, they're friends. You know, so he invites him inside and Schmitz goes inside the trailer. But then he immediately starts asking about that note that appeared in his mailbox, the one that was sexually suggestive. And we don't know what Amador's precise response is. But it seems that Schmitz's suspicions are confirmed. And then he tells Amador, oh, I forgot to turn the car off. And he leaves the trailer, goes back to his car. Oh, my gosh. And then he comes back after getting his gun and then knocks on the door again. And this time when Amador opens the door, that's when he sees the gun in Schmitz's hand. He panics, as anybody would. And he yells out for his roommate, a guy named Gary that we talked about at the beginning of the show. And literally, he screams out, Gary, help, he's got a gun. And I mean, clearly, you know, Amador knew that Schmitz was there and wanted to hurt him, right? Like, he knew the guy has a gun. Hmm. So he tries to protect himself, picking up a chair and trying to use it as a shield. But, you know, sadly, it's no use with a shotgun. Schmitz raises the gun and shoots Amador twice in the chest from point blank range. And then just like that, he gets in the car and leaves. Meanwhile, back in the trailer, Gary calls 911, but it's really too late. Within seconds, Scott is dead. So this is so tragic. And situations like these always make me think, how can something as harmless as a crush make somebody so angry and someone to feel so humiliated? that they would take an innocent life, right? But I do have a lot of other thoughts and I will reserve them uh, for now at least. I do want to know more about Scott Amador. Can you tell us a little bit more about him? Yeah, totally, Salia. Scott Amador was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on January 26, 1963. He was 32 years old when he was shot by Schmitz. Amador's father was a truck driver. His mother was a housewife. After Scott was born, the family moved to Michigan, where his parents soon divorced. When Amador was in high school, he dropped out of school to serve in the army, and he actually served for three years before being honorably discharged with the rank of specialist. He then returned home to Michigan, where he worked in telecommunications for several years before becoming a bartender. According to a documentary that was done on this, it is believed that Amador may have been unemployed, Sadia, at the time of the murder. But, you know, one thing that's for sure, Amador was out and proud of his identity as a gay man, and his family was really supportive of his sexuality. Here is Amador's brother, Frank, talking about it in an interview reported by that documentary series. I found out that he was gay when he was still in the service. 
and uh, it was never really a big deal. So, you know, Sadia, Amador was incredibly generous and kind, going out of his way to help others in the community and offering to take several of his friends who are suffering from HIV complications to the hospital and, you know, help them out. He was also a massive fan of the Jenny Jones show that he Hmm. watched really often. And so, you know, one day while he was watching the program, he saw a promotion for the Secret Crushes segment. And, you know, he was thinking about Jonathan Schmitz. And that's when he decided to apply for the show, really on a whim. And much to his surprise, the producers actually soon reached out and invited him on the show. Wow, I said it's so crazy to think about what Amador's life would be like today had he not applied for the show, right? What an insane series of events. That show changed everything. Yeah, if you just like missed that episode, missed that little segment out of the end, it was probably just like 30 seconds, you know, if you just went up to get some food or go to the bathroom, you know, he would never have replied and... Yeah, it's it's crazy how life can change so quickly. Absolutely. So we are going to take a quick break. But when we return, we'll be learning more about the very man who pulled the trigger, Jonathan Schmitz. Welcome back to Invisible Hate. So Asad, who is Jonathan Schmitz? Yeah, so Jonathan Schmitz was born on July 18th, 1970. He was just 24 years old when he shot Amador. So much younger than Amador, right? At least by seven years. Yeah, by seven years, Sadia. According to that true crime documentary, at the time of the murder, Schmitz worked at a restaurant called The Fox and Hound, and he was recently single. He and his girlfriend had broken up about six months earlier. Schmitz had actually met Amador earlier that year when Amador had come to visit his brother Frank, who lived in the same apartment complex. This is also where both Amador and Schmitz met the woman Donna Riley, who ended up going on the Jenny Jones show with them. Schmitz was much closer with Riley, but remained acquainted with Amador. Unfortunately, as seems to be the case with many of the perpetrators we discussed, though, Sadia, Schmitz suffered from several health issues, both mental and physical. He struggled with bipolar depression, alcoholism, and Graves' disease, which is an autoimmune disorder that impacts the thyroid and often causes many you know, health complications. And, you know, Sadia, as we'll soon learn, Schmitz's criminal defense team centered much of their argument around his personal struggles in his 1996 trial. I said I hear what you're saying and I do feel bad for Schmitz as he was a troubled person. But I also think that a lot of people in this world suffer from mental, physical challenges, but they don't kill or harm other people, right? And this is something that we've discussed time and again So anyways, was Schmitz arrested for his crime? How did police find him? Yeah, great question, Sadia. So police did, in fact, find Schmitz pretty quickly. You know, it didn't take them really long. After leaving Amador's trailer, Schmitz drove to a gas station and immediately called 911 from a payphone confessing to the crime. Oh, wow. So he confessed. He confessed, yeah. 
Here's the call. You can hear it yourself. Why did you do that? Wow. It seems like Schmitz was really freaked out. I mean, anybody would be, right? If you kill somebody. Yeah, I think that's, a, yeah. Especially someone that you know, you also know how much they like you. You would be pretty messed up to do that in the first place, but then obviously freak out once it's done. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, can you imagine just kind of coming to your senses and realizing that you've just shot someone, right? Like, I think we'd all be freaked out, as you just said. So, you know, right after Schmitz tells the 911 operator what he has done, he immediately begins to sob into the phone. And, you know, so that he was just immediately arrested um, and charged with one count of first degree murder and a second count of felony possession of a firearm. And then, you know, Sadia, let's move forward about a year after his arrest on October 14th, 1996. Schmitz appeared in court for his trial. The prosecution essentially tried to prove that Schmitz's action had been clearly thought out and intentional, making him guilty of premeditated first degree murder. And here's a clip from the prosecuting attorney on the case. No matter what the Jenny Jones show did, what the defendant did was 100 times worse. A person cannot kill another person for words that that person spoke. A person cannot kill another person because of embarrassment or humiliation. That is not excuse to murder. The defense, on the other hand, argued that Schmitz had not been in his right frame of mind that day and therefore had not had the ability to properly think rationalize or plan his violent act. This argument was based upon Schmitz's pre-existing mental health struggles. Listen to what his defense attorney had to say. Ladies and gentlemen, there was no murder here. There was a shooting, but there was no murder. The evidence is going to show that Jonathan Schmitz came into this world possessed of a disease, depression, developed alcoholism. See, the prosecution will be unable to prove what he'd like to prove. In this case, the pre-meditation, the deliberation, it's not there because John did not have that ability. And you're going to hear that testimony. He did not have the ability to think, reason or plan. And this is another one of his defense attorneys talking about this point a little bit more. The truth is that John was humiliated when he was ambushed. He was horrified when he was ambushed and he was completely out of control as a consequence of this ambush, which ignited one of those uh, cycles of depression, agitation, and violence. We're talking about a person who has reacted very emotionally to a very traumatic event. He happens to have had bipolar or unipolar depressive disorder that was coupled with this Graves disease, and he probably reacted in a way that presumably you and I may not have reacted, but still it's an understandable reaction as all of the, all the psychiatric and medical testimony will, will support. So, you know, Sadia, the defense also used what was known as the gay panic defense. We've heard oh my people use this, you know, time and time again. Basically, you know, according to sources in these types of assault and murder cases, defendants often use this response to reduce their sentences by claiming that they panicked after discovering the victim's gender identity or sexual orientation. In this particular case... The defense argued that Schmitz had been uncomfortable with Amador's sexual advances 
given his identity as a man and had lashed out as a result. To make matters even worse, Schmitz had been brought up in a household that did not view homosexuality as acceptable. He was therefore angry to have been associated with a gay man on national television and worried that his friends and family would see him as gay as a result. Hmm. Ultimately, these arguments worked, Sadia, which is crazy, and the jury concluded that Schmitz had not acted with premeditation or deliberation due to his unstable state of mind. I said this is confusing to me because he bought a gun. He brought that gun with him to Amador's house. So how was it not premeditated? Yeah, I mean, I think they're saying that basically that whole time, you know, was it was he was in this kind of fog or kind of in this panic, right? And so, like, all of his actions, no matter what he did in that, I'm not justifying it, but all of his actions and what he did, you know, after getting to that state up until, you know, he called 911 was, you know, in a fog. <laughs> yeah. Um, for lack of a better phrase, yeah. I mean, I do understand that he was probably conflicted because initially he leaves the gun in his car, goes inside, then comes back, grabs the gun. So I see that struggle, at least mental struggle. But at the same time, he had a plan B, right? He was thinking of murdering Amador because he took the gun with him. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it's 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 confusing. Totally. You know, and I think the jury kind of saw that, you know, even though he wasn't convicted of first degree murder, he was convicted of second degree murder and also of possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony. And so altogether, he actually got sentenced to 25 to 50 years in prison for what he did. So was that it then, Asit? Yeah. So unfortunately, that wasn't quite it. In September of 1998, the original sentencing was overruled by the Michigan State of Appeals due to a problem with the jury selection oh, in the wow. original trial. But Schmitz was then retried a year later in 1999, and he received the same sentence oh, of 25 oh, okay. to 50 years. So, yeah. Yeah, so the outcome really didn't change them. Yeah, the outcome didn't change, but there was, you know, another trial that that they had to go through. Meanwhile, the Amador family actually filed a wrongful death and negligence suit against the Jenny Jones show and its production company, which was Warner Brothers. According to that documentary that we've been referring to, which we'll have in the show notes, they argued that the show was ultimately to blame for Amador's death. The prosecution claimed that due to Schmitz's history of mental health struggles, the producers for Jenny Jones should have screened him before the show and provided post-show counseling. That actually makes sense to me. It does make sense to me, too. They further argued that producers uh, had misled Schmitz by leading him to believe that his secret admirer was most likely a woman. Oh, so they even misled him into believing something else. That's, you know, that's the claim, you know, um, and that's what Schmitz claimed uh, happened as well. Yeah. So, yeah. But I said, if it's true, then it's pretty messed up. Yeah. In the 90s, if you think about the homophobia of the time period, for sure. Yeah. Nothing justifies taking an innocent life. But at the same time, giving false information is also pretty messed up. 
so, you know, Sadia Schmitz actually had this concern that he was worried that the secret admirer was going to be a man. And when he took this to producers, they actually responded with, don't worry, don't worry. We can't tell you who it is, but we've talked to her and everything is going to be fine. You'll be fine. You're going to have a good time. So really, they downplayed, you know, the fact yeah, that they it misled was him. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. And, you know, Salia, this was a strong argument. And ultimately, the jury found that the producers of the Jenny Jones show were negligent and awarded $25 million to the Amador family. Good for them. Yeah. But (laughs) as you can imagine, the ruling was later overturned and the family never received any compensation for Amador's death. Oh, my God. I said, do we know why? I couldn't find any information. If anybody knows why, please email us and we'll share the update with our uh, listeners. But, yeah, unfortunately, I couldn't figure out where that came from. Oh, my gosh. I said, this is so unfortunate. We are going to take another quick break. But when we return, we'll be discussing our main question. Was this a hate crime? Welcome back to Invisible Heat. With that, Asad, should we get to our primary question of the episode? Should Scott Amador's murder be considered a hate crime? Yeah, you know, Sally, I think this case is one of the more trickier ones, at least, you know, from my perspective. But let's kind of go through the case bullet by bullet. Hmm. Um So, you know, on one hand, the primary source of the concern for Schmitz in this situation seems to be that Amador was a gay man and he is angry to have been associated with a gay man on national television and fears that his family and friends will see him as gay as a result. And so there's definitely like that is a huge thing, right? There's no denying a certain degree of homophobia involved in his response. Absolutely, Asad. And consider how Schmitz might have reacted had Emodo been a woman instead of a man. In Mm. fact, remember, Asad, he explicitly told the Jenny Jones show producers that he would be willing to go on the show if his admirer was a woman, but not if they were a man. They then seem to have led him to believe that it was a woman, which is why he decided to go on the show in the first place. So it seems like had he known that the admirer was not a woman, he would probably have refused to go on the show. Right, which would presumably not let him down the path of murdering someone, right? Right. But as a, despite this case being deemed secondhand murder, the fact of the matter is, after receiving the sexually suggestive note, Schmitz went out and bought a gun with the likely purpose of using it against Scott Amador. Mm. Now, this to me suggests a level of intentionality to his homophobic actions. What do you think? I think that this is a strong point for sure. You know, and I think the other thing that we need to consider, of course, which, uh, you know, I know where you stand on this is, you know, Schmitz had a history of mental illness and, and things like that and felt, you know, that he was ambushed by Amdra's confession. And so, yeah, you know, I think with all this, Sadia, the way uh, I feel about it is I think this should have been prosecuted as a hate crime. You know, I think the fact that if Amador wasn't gay, that he would still be alive today. And I think that's kind of where I where I stand. 
I agree, Asad, but I also think that there is another responsible party in this, which is Jenny Jones' show and yeah. the production crew, because they knew exactly what they were doing. They still let it happen without thinking about the consequences. So I think we can extend some blame, partial blame to them as well. Yeah. I wonder, Sadia, if this were to happen today, so now what are we, 30 years later, right? Hmm. And, you know, there's still these shows that are, are like this, you know, and I'm sure that there are segments in which, you know, someone admits to a crush, you know, their same-sex crushes or, or whatever. I mean, would we still hold the show to account or is there a general understanding that, you know? That's a great question. I don't have an answer for it. I will say this, though. You're right. The environment, external environment in the 90s was very different. And I believe, I would hope that now in 2023, people wouldn't react the way Schmitz did. I do think people should not have, like he should not have reacted the way he did even back in 1996. But what I'm trying to say is that there is more normalization of different mm -hmm. sexual identities versus... 1996, which is a good thing. And therefore, I feel his actions or his reaction to all of this probably seems overblown right now. Mm, yeah, that's a great way. As always, Sadia, you put it best. <laughs> As if you're too kind. <laughs> so, Asad, where is Jonathan Schmitz today? After serving 22 years in a Michigan prison, Schmitz was released on parole in 2017 due to good behavior. But you know, Sadia Amador's family was actually disappointed in Schmitz's early release. His brother Frank told newspapers that he really wanted some sort of assurance that the decision to release Schmitz was not based on just good behavior in prison, that he really wanted to know that Schmitz learned something and that he was a changed man and that he was no longer homophobic and had gotten good psychological care. And, you know, honestly, I would agree with that. You know, you'd, you'd hope that someone who'd gone to prison for this crime would come out, you know, a different person. But, you know, to this day, both Frank and his mother, Patricia Graves, remain incredibly devastated by Scott's loss. Here is Frank again. My whole family was hurt. We will never be the same. And here is Scott Amador's mother expressing similar sentiments. I don't sleep. It's hard because I expect him there all the time. And I just picture this hole with smoke coming out of it. And it's like living in a movie. It's not really happening. Wow, that's so devastating, Asad. Our hearts are with them. But, you know, going back to what you said and what, in fact, Frank said, I wonder how do you gauge if somebody is a changed man or if they are not homophobic anymore or if they don't have hatred towards certain communities or certain people? How do you gauge that? And is prison a good place for rehabilitation? I don't think so. Yeah, I think what I would say, Sadia, to that, and, and, you know, I've thought about this in terms of politicians who have made devastating decisions like, 
you know, instigating war or whatever. And I think the way that you can show that you've changed is to do outreach and public service or community service to, you know, the communities that you've affected, right? And so Mm. did Schmitz, while he was in prison, do some sort of outreach or support for the LGBTQ community over the course of his whatever 20 years in prison, right? Like that to me would prove that, you know, that he understood what he did and and wanted to make amends. And I wish that we had more information. We don't. But that would be, to me, a way that we could kind of gauge whether someone was, quote unquote, you know, rehabilitated. Right, right. And I said, while this case is unique in many ways, unfortunately, members of the LGBTQ plus community continue to face discrimination and violence to this day. A number of these cases, by the way, involve a gay panic response similar to that of Jonathan Schmitz. In fact, if you're interested in learning about another of these cases, go check out our September 21st episode on the murder of Shelby Tracy Tom, the tragic story of the murder of a transgender woman in 2003 in what is later described as another gay panic response. Honestly, I said you and I can only hope that as time goes on, our society becomes more and more tolerant of those who are often marginalized or discriminated against, including members of the LGBTQ plus community. In the meantime, Asad, what can listeners do to help? Yeah, sadly, there's no direct way to help the Amador family, but... You know, you can support the protection and advancement of LGBTQ rights by donating to nonprofit organizations such as the Human Rights Campaign Foundation, the Point Foundation, Lambda Legal, and GLSEN. We'll have links to those in the show notes. That's great, Asad. As always, thank you for listening to Invisible Hate. If you want to learn more, check out links in the show notes about the case. Please email us your thoughts on this story or any other story that you think we should cover. As always, you can reach us at info at invisiblehatepodcast.com. You can also tweet us or hit us up on Instagram. Just search for Invisible Hate Podcast. Yeah, and thanks again for listening. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. Invisible Hate is a joint production of Immigrantly and Rafaelion Media. We'd like to thank our team, which includes Michaela Strather, Emmanuel Monahan, and Paroma Chakravarthy. Our music was done by Simon Hutchinson. We'll be back next week with another hate crime for us to analyze. Until then, I'm Asad Bhatt. And I'm Sadia Khan. 